Welcome to Hookah Chats with Matt and Ethan, a podcast where two friends catch up and talk about whatever nerdy stuff comes to mind, usually over hookah. Enjoy. <laughs> but that's still exciting. Orientation day. I can dig. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing tomorrow. Um, I'm going to drop Maddie off at my sister-in-law's mm-hmm. at her ransacked place. Sure. And then on the 29th is when I begin full time. How's it feel? Uh, good, I guess. I'm still a little bit apprehensive about the, uh, the money situation because unlike the first time when I was a student, like I actually have shit to worry about this time. Yeah, <laughs> no, know? I hear that. I like hear a family that. and yeah. kids and, and like yeah. a house and car. Not that I didn't have those things to worry about last time but those things were all available those things were largely taken care of by my student loans so i had housing allowances i had all that stuff so Mm -hmm. this time around they're kind of like you're on your own yeah but but having said that this time around i'm not paying for all the tuition and the books and everything else it's really it's a good thing but and i have a wife that has a full-time job so she can I took care of our relationship for the first 10 years. She can, she can bank me for a year. <laughs> I think, I think that's true too. I, I know the feeling, you know, I mean, ultimately I uh, got back in the pastor game because I was like, well, I'm really starting to worry about money. Yeah. So I better, <laughs> and everybody's like, just be a student. And I'm like, yeah, but I mean, like, I've got like a four year old. So like, yeah. yeah, I guess I could just be a student, but. I can also do both if I need to. But, yeah, um, she's gonna she's gonna want more for Christmas than ramen noodles. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. I'm glad we paid all our bills. That's really great. But you know, like we could also do something else. That might be nice. So, well, one positive thing. Uh, well, I guess you consider it a positive thing is every time I tell somebody what I'm doing, they're like, mm-hmm. "Oh, great!" I say, "Yeah, I'm going to Triangle Tech to be an electrician," and they're like. Great! I have so much stuff that I need done around my house. <laughs> you got a lot of work coming up. <laughs> so it looks like work. it looks like uh, I'll be doing a lot of uh, of friends and relations, <laughs> but they can pay. I, they, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I'm a big believer in paying friends for for their labor. You know, yeah. <laughs> and so like I'm I'm totally on on board with that, particularly in this economy. Right, right. License. <laughs> none of us have money, at least not anymore. Um, no, I feel that. I feel that. I, uh, I'm glad. Well, that's, that's exciting. That's really exciting. I, I'm going in academia. Well, I got a. Uh, I finished German. Yeah. I got to schedule my German exam. Because uh, that's a thing that I schedule, and then you know, it's like a twenty dollar fee to, to to pay the person to administer it and grade it and stuff. And so I, I want to try just such a racket, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. You, you're you're <laughs> right. You're right. Even me, who's getting, you know, who's, who's getting uh, all kinds of funding. Like, I'm even yeah. like, yeah, I have to pay this. Like, <laughs> like, don't get me wrong. I don't think anybody should have to pay it. Like, I think that people should just get paid. Like, particularly since I'm going to a, a fucking public school, like, take it out of my taxes. I don't care. Like, come on. <laughs> you know, but um, pardon me, but. I want to try to schedule that relatively soon because I don't want to wait too long after class, but I also want to be able to take a, maybe a week, a good solid week of like, I got to 
German uh, theological German textbook and like I want to take some time to like study up not just go right in from the class but like take the class and then have some time where I'm like sitting with like the stuff with like the material so that like if what the text I'm given to translate I might be like I remember I recognize some of these words like that's really good we're talking about God here you know <laughs> like, like that's pretty good um so I got to do that but other than that I've just been you know trying to get stuff ready for the church I start July 1 yeah that's coming up and uh I already have some some different like logistical plans I got to get started on that um that like make uh make things a little more efficient since I'll be part-time um my predecessor called me today and she was like I just want to make sure you're aware of a couple of things like that you might need to focus on right away and you know she kind of told me some of that I'm like okay so I've got plans for dealing with strong personalities and gonna be I think you're rather adept I think you're rather adept at dealing with strong personalities you should be fine Mm -hmm. have you met any of your congregants yet have you physically been on location to any of the places or anything I have been on location I've met one or two folks, met the office administrator, talked on the phone with uh, a guy who might end up being the lay leader still. He's he's one of the guys I got to kind of sit and really talk to um, because he's prone to leave, like he's prone to get angry and then leave. Um, <laughs> and uh, and is still the lay leader. And I mean, churches are always like that, right? Like we can't we can't you know, have any conflict. And so this guy, we allow this guy to do this powerful, but still volunteer position at the church, even though he's impossible to work with and is a blowhard. Uh, And we just sort of let it happen. Whereas for me, I'm like, should you really be doing this? You know, like, like, (laughs) you know, come on, let's find something else. Because I can't guarantee I'm going to make you keep you happy. And keep you around that's not what i that's not my goal anyway um so i gotta do that and then i met uh another lady who has head of the worship committee who's pretty nice and and so i might try to meet with her one-on-one at some point to get her take on some things i don't know i'd like to i'd like to shrink it everything so that it's one master committee for everything uh, which is a strategy that it's like a way it, it, it's a perfectly allowed way of doing things. And it's usually for smaller congregations because there's just not enough people to make up all these different committees. And I want them to do it mostly because like, I can't promise them that I'll be at every committee meeting. Right. You know, but if it's one committee meeting once a month, I can do that. Like that's, now, does, that de- does that depend on both congregations giving a shit about one another, though? Because, like, I know how most church people are, at least in my experience, and they care about their church and they don't give a damn about anybody else. <laughs> that uh, will be part of the wooing process for this. <laughs> you know, they they share they share expenses like they share me. I'm ultimately the shared expense. Right. And so I think that. I'm going to try to make it pretty clear to them that uh, within the end of the month, I think we need to move over to that structure because I don't really see any other way of 
them, you know, even being remotely happy, like, like with me showing up to things, you know, like if they don't want to change the structure, then I'll be like, okay, well, which, uh, which months would you rather me not show up to all of your meetings? <laughs> right. What? You know, like, cause I'm not, I'm not just going to show up. Like I can't show up to, you know, as a part-time person who lives 30 minutes away, I can't show up to five meetings a month. I could show up to one meeting a month. And so let's just do that. You know, come on. Right. Well, your first seven weeks sermons are going to have to be about how the church is actually one church, not just a bunch of buildings. Exactly. Right. You, you, got, you figured it out. Use a little, use a little manipulation there. <laughs> oh, you know me. I'm, I'm not above it. I, uh, uh, the, the, I just hit them with the old shame. Like, like I will shame them into doing what I want. And, you know, I've had some success. Um, and I think that, so we'll, we'll see how that goes, but that's kind of been the thing that I've been focusing on and figuring things out for. And other than that, I've been watching pro wrestling videos. Yeah. Just pass the time. <laughs> Billy, Billy Robinson, Chuck, if you're listening, Billy Robinson, professional wrestler from the seventies guy was amazing. That's yeah. what I've been watching old Billy Robinson videos being like, wow, <laughs> guy's great. Now, when you're watching those old nostalgic videos, is it is it hard to like I, it seems to me like so much of, of professional wrestling is enmeshed in, in storylines. Right. So yeah. part of the fun would be not really knowing what's going to happen next. So mm -hmm. it kind of feels like it's kind of feels like uh, it seems from the outside looking in like uh, maybe it's like watching an old movie that you've seen before. And so you, mm. you kind of lose interest in it after a while, but you sure. don't really seem to have that experience. Why, why do you think that is? I think that um, for me, it's because of the way pro wrestling does the storytelling. And so like, if it was just a movie or a TV show, um, there's sort of, I'm going to put it this way. There's sort of one way movies and TV uh, um, present their story. There might be multiple layers to how they present it within that one way, but the medium is you watch it. You watch it happen. You watch it happen via camera angles and shots and acting and dialogue and all of this stuff, and that's fine. Um, I think that what, what makes pro wrestling when it's good, because when pro wrestling is bad, it is bad, um, <laughs> but, when it's, but when it's good, it's great. When it what when when pro wrestling is good, what makes it uh, maybe a little more long lasting for me is all of it is the stories sort of unfold um, through a number of different kind of uh, combined mediums. And so, like if you take somebody like Jake the Snake Roberts, I don't know if you remember. Oh, Jake the Snake I remember Jake up. the Snake very well. Yeah, so I used were, to have the little rubber doll. He was about yeah, a foot tall. With the with mm -hmm. the python pose and uh, the little the little ring with the little par paracord ropes, yeah, right, right. <laughs> Jake, one of the things that that makes Jake, in my opinion, really long lasting, is his ability to storytell on the microphone and without the microphone. And so we can remember, or I I will sit and watch Jake the Snake Roberts interviews because they're great because he's yeah. he's such a great interview but jake the snake in the ring while he wasn't like some phenomenal athlete who could do all these crazy things jake the snake uh in the ring was able to continue the storytelling 
through his in-ring psychology, through his ability to just use his body, you know, uh, the correct way. One of the things that commentators always said about Jake when he wrestled was that there was no wasted motion. Right. You know, it's mostly it was because he's relatively a, a relatively limited worker. He, he wasn't sort of a natural athlete. And so like every move that he had in his arsenal, um, fit. you know, not only with his story, but with his character. And so for me, it's really great to watch um, wrestling from sort of all these different time periods um, and enjoy what is happening in the ring and in interviews and in other, you know, kind of storytelling things because there's, there's such a, a density to it. Like you can watch a match and yeah, there's a story that's happening in the match, but there's also uh, the larger story that's happening to these characters outside of the match, the, the, the storytelling in the match is promoting. And then there's, you know, but especially if it gets really technical, there's sort of the technical um, uh, uh, dance-like nature of the whole thing that that is fun to watch and interesting to watch and and stuff like that. Sometimes, if it's a um, if it's a match that I really want to see, but I haven't seen before, I won't look up who wins just so right. that I can I can watch it. But um, other times, there there are sort of these legendary matches that uh, we all remember who wins, or, or history remembers who wins. But but just because of the way the match sort of unfolds, there's there's a legendary status to it that like right. y- makes you want to go back and watch it and watch it. You can immerse yourself in. I think it was WrestleMania. This will not be the pro wrestling episode, <laughs> listeners. Don't worry. I think it was WrestleMania five. Um, no, it wasn't WrestleMania five. It was WrestleMania three. WrestleMania three uh, was this. It was one of the first WrestleManias outside. So it was this big, uh, like ninety. It was like this obscene ninety thousand person attended WrestleMania. Right. And uh, one of the and it was, it's essentially a WrestleMania that's famous for essentially two moments. One, the main event was Hulk Hogan versus Andre for the title. Right. And Hulk slams Andre the Giant, and everybody's like, nobody's ever slammed Andre the Giant. And yeah. then Harley Race is like, well, in 77, I slammed Andre the Giant like 80 times. So but whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever you all need to say, like, that's fine. Um, but like, that's this big moment that the crowd goes, comes unglued for. But the other thing that WrestleMania 3 is remembered for is Macho Man Randy Savage and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat for the Intercontinental title. Mm-hmm. And uh, because it's it's possibly in the top two or three greatest matches ever televised in the history of ever. <laughs> um, and I can't you, you just have to watch it. I can't explain it. But like but like it, 93,000 people are like, <gasps> like, like caught up in, in just this, this is like wave of ecstasy during this whole match. And uh, there's this really cool documentary that I watched on Macho on Randy Savage where where ricky steamboat is on and he's talking about how um you know macho man and i planned the entire match from beginning to end like we we worked on that match for a month and we planned it and there was there's this yellow legal notepad that macho man had where it was just steps one through 167 of literally every hit everything we do in the match and uh and we had it memorized like we got to the point where we had worked it so much that we could you know, like, like Ricky Steamboat's like, I could say, Randy, 
Step 36 is this. What comes next? And then Randy Savage is like, step 37 is this. Step 38 is this. Step 39. <laughs> and he just, he just goes. And, uh, and, and Ricky Steamboat's like, I can watch that match. And I can tell you, and I can count the hits. I can count each beat and exactly yeah. it. You know, and, and, he, and he, did, he didn't do the whole match, but, he, but he, like, he started the match and he would do it. And it's like one clinch, separate two clinch again, you know, and, and it's yeah. just and it's hip toss, hip toss, like, like everything. And, and it was, and it's amazing. And like, and at the end of this match, you know, R- Ricky, Ricky wins, R- Ricky Steamboat wins the intercontinental title. And, uh, after, uh, uh, Ricky Steamboat's talking about it and, and he gets the last bit 167 pin and on 167, Ricky Steamboat pins Randy Savage. And Ricky's like, I got him in the pin. The three count is coming. And when the three count hits and all 93,000 people jump up out of their skin, Macho Man whispers to me, we got him, Dragon. (laughs) (laughs) He did it. (laughs) He got him. And 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 so I like stuff like that. Like I like, you know, those legendary matches or what makes Billy go for it. That's uh, that's what seems sort of appealing to me about it. Uh, after the fact number one listening to you recount the stories is entertaining because of your passion Mm -hmm. for it so that's good but also having this sort of this meta game sort of outside looking i like the it's the same reason i used to like watching behind the music on vh1 yeah yeah like it Mm -hmm. yeah i don't i don't really care what the rock storyline is like as it's happening week to week on raw i don't really care whether you know who's feuding with whom um, and, and I'm not really immersed in that kind of aspect of it. But when you look at like the Generation X from the meta standpoint after the mm-hmm. fact, and you're talking about like a, a documentary that that recounts the whole thing with things like Ricky Steamboat talking mm-hmm. about his hits in, the, in WrestleMania mm-hmm. 3, that stuff's really intriguing. That stuff's yeah. kind of neat. I really, really like the... Uh, the dark side of the ring episode with the, with the, uh, um, Bret Hart, whenever he yeah, did, Montreal got, screw got screwed with the Montreal screw job, that would not have been a compelling story to me at inside the world of wrestling, but on the mm-hmm. outside of wrestling, knowing all the stuff that happened that culminated around it, that's a really interesting story in and of it. So the stories are almost, uh, secondary to the, the, the grand the real life stories you know so. yeah yeah i know what you mean as i get older uh and then we'll put a kibosh on this because you want to talk about critical race theory for some <laughs> well you want to talk about critical race theory. I, that's, <laughs> true. that's true i'm i'm projecting um i uh as i get older my tastes change um and i think this is just true of of how professional wrestling works right like I think that I think that storylines matter. I think storylines are important because I think in pro wrestling, because if if we sort of if if the illusion totally falls apart, then what the fuck are we even watching? Like right. No, I completely understand that. I'm just saying from a from a me as a not week week wrestling fan. Mm-hmm. These are absolutely necessary. That's what it's all about. Right. right. But for me, right. the more compelling thing is hearing about especially passionate people like yourself talking about things that happened back in the day. That's even more intriguing. Well, and so and I'm glad you say that. But like as I get older, 
I become, I always become like my dad. But like when I was growing <laughs> up, my dad was teaching me about wrestling. All of my dad's favorite guys are now, and, and the reason why they're his favorite guys uh, and, and now girls was women's wrestling is really in its prime, you know, in, in, as a real thing. Um, are now the same reasons why I like some of these guys. Like when I was growing up, my dad didn't really have any time for, you know, like the, uh, the, the super strong characters. It's not that my dad didn't like them. Um, he wasn't an like ultimate my, warrior fan. <laughs> no, he wasn't. Well, that's because ultimate warrior is the worst. Like you should, what you really should do is you should find the dark side of the ring episode about the ultimate warrior, because then you get to listen to Jim Ross say, uh, the ultimate warrior is the least talented human being I have ever worked with in my entire professional wrestling career. Like, like, because he's that bad, but like my dad, um, like my dad, liked macho man, but like one of the <laughs> reasons why my dad liked macho man is Hey, he was really great. He's awesome and funny and silly and great. But my dad liked macho man because macho man was a great worker. Like right. he, he was, he was an athlete who really made everything look good you know and and ricky steamboat's the same way and so like as i get older i have found that my tastes have really gravitated towards the guys and girls who are really strong technical workers like whose whose work is smooth and 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 good and good to watch and looks i suppose you can say looks real but what i really mean mm -hmm. is that it looks serious you know it, right. it, it doesn't it doesn't look cartoony and silly like it. You, you've I come to appreciate the technique involved. You've exactly. come to appreciate the athleticism and the technique rather than just the 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 glitz and the glamour of it. You know, like the mm -hmm. ultimate warrior. I mean, let's face it. The guy was a an, the cover of an 80s romance novel yes. <laughs> right? with, with the yes. feathered hair and the tanned skin. And like that's but that's all it was required at the time. Um, mm -hmm. And for a 12 year old or a you weren't probably even alive <laughs> I, I was not alive yet but but you know for me that was all i needed was to see that and the, and the face paint and the hair and the grimace on his face you know mm. and you're like ah, that guy's awesome i didn't know shit about wrestling i didn't know shit about technique i didn't know shit about athleticism i didn't you know mm -hmm. exactly <laughs> and so like for for me like i i've i've now gravitated towards um and indie wrestling is good for that wrestling that's right. not sort of you know, you know, the, the independent scene, the independent scene is good for folks my age or folks who have some of my interests, because um, there's a lot of funny, silly things in the independent scene. But it's more like um, the funny, silly stuff is more like a uh, meme culture. It's more like trolls, which are yeah. funny, like like it's funny. But like other than that, it's it's pretty much all athleticism all the time. Like it's all, you know, we, we take things very seriously. There's a my, my last thing, I promise. There's a, a really cool dude named Jonathan Gresham, who's this, he's five foot, he's like five foot four, he's like 170 pounds, you know, he's really, really super fit black guy, and uh, is easily the best technical wrestler I've ever seen alive right now. Like, like, I'm watching this guy work, and I'm just like, man, this guy's amazing, he's, he's incredible, and, um, you know, just tying people up in holds, and, and just smoothly going from one thing to another, and just it doesn't matter that he's so small. It's, it, 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 it looks so good and it looks so painful <laughs> you know, when he's got a guy tied up. Um, but he talks about like, like I've listened to interviews with him, you know, shoot interviews where he's not in like his character where he's like, yeah, I mean, I, I was trained 
to um, uh, have a style of wrestling that will allow me to do this and make a living for 30 years mm-hmm. and not worry about breaking my neck, you know, and not worry about uh, killing myself, but, but can work as an athlete, you know, and as a performer and, and have a match with anybody. And he talks about, he talks about um, being able to like not have to plan matches. Like, like he's just like, one of the things I do is he goes to in, these indie shows. Like he'll go to shows um, that he's not booked on mm-hmm. uh, to support the guys. He pays for his ticket and he goes to support the guys because he's all, everybody's friends with each other. Cause it's, it's, right. it's the scene. and, um, and he's like, what often happens is somebody misses their booking and a promoter's like, Gresham, I need you to, can you kill 15 minutes for me? I'll pay you your rate. And he's like, yeah. And so Jonathan Gresham will go over to the guy who's wrestling. And he's like, the finish is a, is a roll up, me in 15. And then they just go out. <laughs> and, and, Jonathan, and Jonathan Gresham just walks him through a match for 15 yeah. minutes. And the crowd's like, holy shit. And then on the fit, on the ref tells him when they hit the, like, 1430 and he's like cool and then he and then he he's like at 1430 when they got 30 seconds left he tells the guy i'm taking us home and then he puts him in the roll up and uh and pins him and that's the match and i'm like <laughs> fuck yeah like <laughs> that's amazing that's incredible that's the stuff i like that's what yeah, i yeah that's pretty I, cool you know so. oh my so critical race theory bring it there's some wacky shit going on in the news have you seen um, yes i have but the the wacky shit in the news just illustrates people's ignorance towards critical race theory and and this is where i this is why whenever you mentioned it i was kind of excited because i was like oh boy we're going to talk about something that's kind of in my wheelhouse because this is really a legal theory right you're you're exactly right so uh Go ahead and, and introduce the folks to critical race theory as you understand it and what's going on. All right. So listeners, unless you've been living under a rock or living in a, in a functioning first world democracy, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's not ours. Um, you've heard uh, people talk about critical race theory more than you've ever thought imaginable. Certainly more than critical race theorists ever thought imaginable. Um, I uh, a lot just about everything you have heard from the news or from politicians is essentially bullshit. You know, it's like wrong. It's, essentially, it's essentially wrong. It's essentially they're essentially making stuff up um, and creating a problem when there is no problem, so that they have something to run on in the in the coming years. Uh, because otherwise, there's nothing to run on except the usual jingoistic, you know, nonsense. Um, I do my best. I'll get off of this soon. I do my best to not listen to what people who are who are wrong say critical race theory is. And luckily, I don't have to because they rarely say what they think it is. They just kind of they just kind of say it's bad. And, and you know, people go to school board meetings and say, I don't want my kids to learn critical race theory. And then everybody is like, were kids learning about critical race theory? <laughs> I didn't think they were. Um, but critical race theory, my understanding of critical race theory is, is that it is a, uh, uh, an offshoot 
of both critical theory and critical legal studies um, that uh, I would say from my limited understanding really got popular, or I shouldn't say popular, began to form as a real entity probably around the 80s. And it deals with questions of race and intersectionality, which is a sort of a big word. All that means is um, the notion that various social locations are not sort of live in a vacuum. They intersect, as it were. And so um, what that might mean concretely is a Black man uh, has a, a different uh, uh, collection of social experiences than a Black woman, precisely because a Black woman is both Black and a woman. Right. And, and those are social locations that intersect uh, in, in often unjust and bad ways. And it poses questions, critical race theory poses questions about the way our social structures uh, shape our, um, ourselves and our institutions. Um, the critical legal study stuff, you should, I will definitely leave to you um, because you know quite a bit more about it than me and I want to hear from you. But, but critical theory, I know what I know more about than critical race theory itself is the broader critical theory. And all what critical theory is, is um, uh, a kind of a way of thinking and talking and, and writing and all of this stuff that does not take for granted that the sort of symbols, structures, things of our life and of our shared common life uh, really are what they appear to be. It's a critical, sometimes you might hear suspicion, uh, a hermeneutics mm -hmm. of suspicion, a suspicious posture to that. Um, uh, Right-wing politicians like to say these are Marxist claims, and they are kind of right, like, like in that. No, not really, not really. Though. But go ahead. <laughs> in terms of critical theory now, in terms yeah. of critical, they are, they are sort of correct in that critical theory uh, has its roots in certain moves that Marx makes when it, when it comes to things like Marx's critique of economics or Marx's critique of uh, religion in particular and, and things like that. But these are not Marxist theories. Um, these are uh, mostly because critical theorists don't have to be Marxists at all. Um, for example, Jesus of Nazareth <laughs> was not a Marxist, but but would probably fit a lot of the def defining features of what critical theory is. Um, one of the one of the critical theorists that I really like is a French guy named Paul Ricoeur, who was not a Marxist, but but spent a lot of time thinking about symbols and language and stuff like that, and quite correctly pointed out that often our language has many, multiple meanings and some of those meanings are hidden and used for nefarious purposes. Mm -hmm. And we should, we should think through those things. Um, so I could, I say all of that. And then I would love to hear from you. I say all of that to say um, right-wingers and, and, and even just not right-wingers, just folks who have been sort of whipped into this frenzy of fearing critical race theory. Um, if they are sensing something true, might be sensing, 
and I might be giving folks a little too much credit, might be sensing that it is true that the critical part of critical race theory or the critical part of critical theory um, is us is an attitude of suspicion mm -hmm. that um, when they say things like critical race theory is teaching our kids to hate America, what they might be sensing is some of these ways of thinking are causing might cause somebody to go perhaps what American history says is true about America might, we might need to be suspicious of. Um, Cause that would be a critical attitude towards, you know, the, the whole endeavor, but critical theorists broadly range from politics to theology, to religion, to sociology, to psychology, to literary studies, art theories, like, like it's a very wide and, 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 um, often very helpful <laughs> way of thinking um, that we actually don't have anything to fear, to, to be afraid of, because it's, a th it's an idea, and ideas can't actually hurt us. They're ideas. <laughs> I might argue with that point, too. But, Fair enough. Um, the most important thing to understand about critical race theory that's being ignored in the media right now, it, this is a theory, it's a legal theory, First of all, it's a legal theory that first started gained traction in the 70s and nobody really talked about it until the 90s. But um, <clears throat> the fact that it's a legal theory means that it sh does not have a political motivation. OK, it is not in, in our society in, in, in the American system. When you speak of things in terms of legality, you're supposed to think at like an enlightened thinker right so there's no there's no um there's no al alternative or ulterior motives ulterior, yeah right so critical race theory was examining how certain laws exist and have unintended consequences towards certain racial or ethnic groups. It is not to say that they are, are Jim Crow laws, okay, which had a clear agenda, right? Mm -hmm. um, the best example I can think of would be um, like, and, and this is an extreme example, but say like a poll tax, right? Cool. If you were to have a charge, uh, like when you, when you go to vote and it costs $10 to, to vote, that's going to harm poor people because they right. won't be able to afford to vote right critical race theory takes that a step further and says many people of color are in this poor category because they have uh they have not had access to the same sorts of educational opportunities the same kind of societal opportunities the same kind of uh loans from the bank, et cetera, et cetera, all these factors involved in, in our society where that law would impact a specific racial group more than it was intended, mm -hmm. right? So that's really all critical race theory is, is saying, okay, we need to look at how our laws, sort of what you said, they don't mean what they say, 
or more, more, more to the point, they don't do what they were intended to do in a fair yeah. and equitable way. Okay. Mm -hmm. What critical race theory is not is what people are getting all up in arms about on in the media today, because it's been used as a political cudgel. Yeah. Right. And what it's, it is not affirmative action. No, right. It actually, when, that's a big deal for it. Yeah. Right. And when, when people hear critical race theory, because they don't truly understand what it is, the first thing they gravitate to, and thanks to guys like Matt Gates, um, they, they are directed to things like affirmative action. And people start to, uh, they start to associate critical race theory with other, uh, with their own um, disadvantages or their own struggles. Mm -hmm. And they see it as an excuse for minorities to uh, to alter the laws to somehow favor them. And that's not what critical race theory is. Right. Critical race theory is saying, what are the laws and how do they affect people of all structures, of all mm -hmm. of all races differently because of factors that were not in the original intent of their laws? Right. OK, so if you. If you going back to the analogy with the with poll tax, right, you might say, well, we need to fund elections. We need to be able to pay to, to create ballots. We need to be able to pay poll workers. We need to be able to pay vote counters. We need to be able to pay for all uh, the, the fire hall needs a certain amount of money to, to host the event. So there's a certain economic need there. One way that we can get this money is to charge people a cover charge, basically, to come and and vote that way the people that are voting are actually paying for the, the service that they're using and on paper it sounds great yeah, that, that makes sense right but you don't realize what the lasting impact is and how it disproportionately affects people not necessarily on a, just a race level but it affects people on a class level it affects people on an access level and oftentimes due to other factors those people are in specific racial or ethnic groups. That's all critical race theory is. That's it, that's all it is. It's explaining how there's unintended consequences that may negatively or in some cases positively affect uh, different racial and ethnic groups without having that intent in the law. Right. Make sense? It does make sense. In church world, one of the things that is important is accessibility for folks who, you know, maybe are in wheelchairs or, or can't get around or, 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 it, or whatever. If a um, worship service is designed in such a way that things like standing, walking, shaking hands, moving around, using the physical body is sort of important and necessary that without meaning to um, ices out folks who are not really able to participate in those ways. This is one of the reasons why um, in church world uh, uh, it matters how we do communion, right? Like, like this, uh, this is a very small scale, 
sort of non-legal way of, of using the same kind of ideas. But those un, but I like what, how you are um, bringing forward the sort of unintentionality behind it, because I think that's correct. I think that um, it, if, if, we, if we take that same principle and apply it to something like church, we see how, oh, yeah, nobody's trying to, to, un, to, to not include folks who can't do X, Y, Z thing. Right. But this is, uh, but, but this is what has happened because of these rules. And so uh, perhaps the next step because of knowing these things, at least in church world is what can we do to maybe fix that or address that and, and make that different? I think that um, that second piece is what it also has been weaponized by a lot of folks on the right mm -hmm. uh, to scare folks too. Like, um, listen, you didn't mean for this to happen. So why are they blaming you? Why should things change anyway? Is this really what's going on? Like, so let's think about um, not just poll taxes, uh, the idea of making sure you have uh, multiple, val multiple valid forms of identification before right. you go uh, to, to vote is another example. This is one of the reasons why there are some folks who are, who are claiming, um, I think rightly, that a lot of the laws that are being passed in certain state legislatures to sort of change election laws are, are keeping certain people from voting or have the perhaps unintended or perhaps perfectly intended. They process. absolutely are. They, are. they are perfectly intended. And that's where critical race theory is getting dragged through the mud. Because right. whenever somebody illustrates something like uh, having a, a voter ID law is gonna disproportionately affect people of color who don't have access to the same sorts of resources to get those IDs, it's going. They say, "Well, that's a critical race theory thing. We can we can look at this from the outside without having any bias and say this is what's going to be the effect of it." And whenever Matt Gates is told, "No, you have to let you know Puerto Ricans vote," mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Then they say, "Oh, it's critical race theory," and they, and they conflate it mm -hmm. because it's thwarting their <laughs> agendas. <laughs> right their plan <laughs> they, they demonize it right right now i think we have like eight or ten or i don't know how many states have already passed laws saying that you can't like teach about it in school which is right ridiculous but go ahead i'm sorry no no you, you you're saying exactly what i think is is correct and what, what i'd be saying right like things like that when they're called out um what is now happening is is I think folks who are consuming sort of right-wing media or, or whatever are being trained to hear those things in a certain register. And, and the register is what, just like what you've described. When somebody is saying, hey, like, I, I understand that we're afraid of election integrity. We're, 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 we're concerned, not afraid of it. We're concerned about our election integrity. Um, although the only reason we are terribly concerned was because Donald Trump said that we should be, even though everything was fine, but whatever. <laughs> like, like, I understand that we're concerned, but like these things that you are doing to try to address that concern um, will only succeed in doing this thing. And this thing is disenfranchised people who, who uh, from voting and the folks who are being disenfranchised are poor folks, black folks and other folks of color 
for all of these other reasons that we can point to in ultimately a pretty dispassionate way and just be like, yeah, this is just sort of how it is. Right. And that is the key. The, 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 the dispassionate part is the key when you're speaking in legalese, right? It's mm -hmm. not about, I, I think the problem is a lot of these commentators are, are the conservative commentators are like, they're misusing the term as a catch-all for like any kind of anti-racism or, or diversity laws that get put into place. And they're, they're trying intentionally to lump mm -hmm. it in there so that um, it gets discredited out of hand on a passionate level instead of at a critical level, right? right. Instead of at a, at a dispassionate matter of fact way, they can, dis they can discredit it by making it passionate and making it uh, uh, an emotional thing, which is not what critical race theory is. No, no. And I think what, I, I totally agree with you because what, what ends up sort of happening, I think, and, and why I, I often waste a lot of brain power trying to understand, you know, what, Try, trying to construct like a coherent argument out of out of the Matt Gates of the world. Um, there are a lot of things in that are just sort of common American history things that up until this point have just sort of been taught. Like now they might have been taught maybe inefficiently or deficiently, but they've been taught like American slavery or the civil rights movement or things like that, where now because of this politicalization of critical race theory and the way some of these laws are being written, those things now seem to be lumped in to all of these problems that, that the issue, uh, I, I think Martin Luther King is a great example of this. Martin Luther King Jr. is not a critical race theorist, not yeah. at all, actually. Um, well, there no, he was dead of, before it was before it was yeah, a thing. <laughs> long before it was a thing, and, and and also even even some of his uh, even some of the people who've come after him wish he was a little harder on white people. Like, right. like Martin Luther King is not you know like he he's he's not a boogeyman. Yet here we are, you know now. Well, Questions it's like interesting that, that it's interesting that the term that you just used there when you said, you know, being harder on white people, if he was being harder on white people, he wouldn't be a critical race theorist either. You're right. Because he would have an agenda in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and critical race theory, it's very important that people understand this. It's not a passionate argument. It is a strictly way. Uh, it's strictly a way of looking at legal uh, proceedings, legal documents, legal uh, uh, policies, and and how they affect issues of race. It doesn't have anything to do with an agenda, right? And I think I think the, 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 the hardest thing is there's a lot of people that don't have a very long memory or, mm -hmm. or don't have, on the right and on the left. I, I will say on the left, I feel like a lot of people, there's a lot of uh, tension in the progressive wing right now uh, about, you know, I heard a commentator the other day on MSNBC say that like race relations are as bad in this country as they've ever been. And I'm like, well, that's a little bit, that's, that that's being, strange. yeah, well, you're, 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 you're telling me that now 
is worse than like the fifties and sixties. Right. You're telling me that now is worse than the twenties. Whenever we had the Tulsa race riots and people got murdered, you're telling me now is worse than whenever the Klan was able to run rampant in the 1800s or lynchings happened all the time. You're telling me now is worse than slavery. Come on. You know, it's, it's that fantastical kind of uh, headline grabbing thing that I think makes the, because they don't want to be lumped into that. They say, well, you know, I'm not, I don't see Keller. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and whenever they can link that to critical race theory, then it gets it gets immediately just credited and dragged through the mud. And yeah. I I think that that happens on both sides of the aisle. I think the left does it less intentionally, <laughs> but they do it yeah, more I sensationally. And I mm-hmm. think the right is a little bit more calculated with their manipulation of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But neither side gets true. it right <laughs> because it's not a no, side thing. I- yeah, you're right. It's not a side thing. And I think that I think you're correct. I think that um, I think what ends up happening a lot on the left is um, we uh, we feel so much <laughs> and, and then we and then we don't really we catastrophize uh, something that is often very bad. It's not that things mm-hmm. are good. Um, but we catastrophize it, I think, out of uh, reflex for some reason. Whether that's to get us to care, I don't know. But like, either way, it's not good. I, I definitely agree with you. Um, now, I think that critical, I think that theorists or folks who are uh, working on anti-racist um, policies or, or an anti-racist activism, um, those folks often use critical race theory to make sense of the laws that they're uh, fighting against or, mm-hmm. or the work that they're doing. And that's fine. That, that's fine. Once again, I can't. I can't imagine a high school learning about them anyway. You know, like like in what class would we learn that in? Like, um, well, that's part of the problem. <laughs> I think sure. there needs to be more classes about this. Not I, I agree. <laughs> I agree with you. Um, but I, I, I'm just more reflecting on the, um, just the sentiment of. Of freaking out, you know, uh, mm-hmm. on this, we have to we have to stop critical race theory at the high school level. I'm like, well, there is no critical race theory at the high school level. Like, like what are you, what are you talking about? Like, what what is, what is then the unintended consequences, or perhaps fully intended consequences, of these kinds of uh, laws banning critical race theory? Uh, you know, going to be in these school districts, right? will uh it's not i'm not really trying to pot i'm not like i'm not trying to slippery slope the argument here because that's bullshit but like the the if if the definitions being used to say if the definitions in play of what is being banned are not concise enough they're not clear enough uh what then falls under those definitions would be the questions that i have Right. And those questions are, are kind of what can not only concern me, but also make this totally incoherent, you know. Um, and I think this is where uh, uh, maybe some of the sensationalism on the left comes from as they're trying, as some folks are attempting to speculate what any of this could mean, uh, which is not often very helpful. 
but yeah, I don't know. I I'm I find it interesting. Um, I guess I shouldn't find it so interesting, but I find it interesting that that this was the thing, like like this ultimately obscure, um, obscure in the sense that it's not like there is a popular critical race theorist who's writing popular <laughs> books for right. for people like this ultimately obscure very academic term is what is sort of being brought forward as as a sign that 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 your reality your life your america uh is going to come crumbling down uh which i find uh, uh i find it strange and i also uh am not i guess i shouldn't be surprised well here here's the thing that you've got to recognize with the right's use of critical race theory in modern media, right? The right is solely functioning on social issues. They mm -hmm. have no they have no policy issues that they can put forward. They have no agenda uh, other than purely social and societal issues, right? One of the boogeymen of the right is academia, You're right? right? Um, critical race theory has resided mainly in academia, mm -hmm. right? People don't talk about this on the street, you know? Mm -hmm. I learned about it in college because that's what I was going to school for in the legal profession, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I understand, but I, I mean, it's mainly an academic topic one of the reasons the right wants to use it to vilify is to attack academia. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it doesn't surprise me at all that they've, they've drawn this rabbit out of their hat, you know, cause it, it, they, they use it, they morph it in with the, with the other boogeymen of the right, you know, cancel culture. Right. Or, right. uh, you know, uh, Mr. Potato head, uh, yeah. <laughs> all these, I forgot about all these, that one. That's all these one. sort of like ridiculous cultural uh, boogeymen that they put up to convince people that they're losing their America mm -hmm. or they're losing their uh, culture or because it's all fear mongering, right? Um, critical race theory, because it's it, it, it exists mainly in academic realms, can be first of all misconstrued to the public sure. um morphed into another sort of cancel culture identity and used as a cudgel to discredit people that would otherwise be objective sure. in their examination of a legal policy and they can once that link has been drawn, once that once that connection has been made, then you can immediately discredit somebody who knows what they're talking about, <laughs> because mm -hmm. somebody will just turn them off because they're going to think, well, they're just one of those liberal hacks that you know uh, mm -hmm. is tr is trying to take away my freedom to carry a gun or whatever. Sure, you know. Yeah. So conflation is the game on the right. Mm -hmm. um muddying the waters is is the game on the right so it, it, it doesn't surprise me at all that they would take something academic and vilify it for their own yeah. purposes yeah 
That's interesting. That's interesting. I think that... Um, and it's not like the left hasn't given them reasons to do that. I mean, oh, like... Oh, I agree. I, I mean, there's, there's times uh, where, you know, I feel a lot of times the people on the left are short-sighted and they do live too much in the now and they don't have a good perception of what, you know history was like like i said when somebody says like race relations in this country are worse than they've ever been that is just disregarding the entire history of our country and i think one of the problems with progressives is we fail to recognize progress <laughs> right mm, sure, now this sure. is not to say this is not to say that 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 everything's done is there's no mission accomplished banner that i'm trying to put up or anything right. like that Right. Mm. I'm not saying that there's not work that needs to be done, but I think what frightens a lot of the people on the right is a lot of people on the left are constantly critical of things because they want them to be better, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it seems like they don't give credit or recognize the progress that's happened. I mean, this is March. We're recording this or this is uh, June. We're recording this <laughs> in June. Right. Right. Um, there there was no there was no. Uh, um, Black History Month in the sixties. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. There was no, there was no uh, LGBTQ Equality Month. You know, right. we have we have made enormous strides in this country in the la in recent times in the last you know 20, 30 years. Uh, Twenty years ago, I mean, during during the Clinton administration, there would have never been. Uh, there was like 4% of the population that was in favor of interracial marriage, let alone gay couples right. being married. And nowadays, mm -hmm. like you can't look at, you can't look at a, 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 a laxative commercial on TV without seeing an interracial couple, Sure, you know, and I've seen a lot more, uh, you know, homosexual couples depicted mm -hmm. on TV. Like you can't even get like friends, the TV show friends. <laughs> wouldn't happen today like six white middle class people like all getting together sure. without any kind of cultural diversity at all the mm -hmm. studio would throw you out if that happened right. so like right. we've made but we on the on the on the left we tend to not recognize the progress that has been made and mm -hmm. i think that really frightens people on the right because they think well they'll never be happy like look what's happened here and it's and they may not like what's happening as it is, but, you know, it seems as it is never enough for those people on the right or on the left. So, you know, we've got to right. stand up to them and, and take back our culture. And right. on the right way, I mean, we got or on the left. We just got to take the W every once in a while and say, hey, well, look, we've made we've made progress. We've made a lot of progress and we need to tout that a little bit more. I think uh, I think sometimes we get too enraptured in what's wrong and we don't really want to say what's right or what's sure. changed for the better and i think that would be a, a better message for some people that are not already on the trump train to hear <laughs> sure sure the paul ricoeur the french uh guy i brought up at the beginning mm -hmm. um is is understood as a critical theorist just in this kind of different sort of way because he's not really influenced by some of the different things critical other critical theorists are influenced by but he uh is relatively famous for coining the phrase the hermeneutics of suspicion which mm -hmm. is just uh really part and partial to what it means to be 
critical, not just a critical theorist, but to have a sort of a critical attitude towards critical uh, critical thinking now is how I'm sort of using that. Not like critical, I hate my life. And I well, hate and that's the, the, that's the thing, like the word critical isn't yeah. inherently negative. Now we hear right. it that way. We hear it that we do. way. We do. But critical means, you know, examining something uh, objectively. That's what critical you're, means. You're right. You're it's right. Not, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. Right? It is quite a good thing. I think we, exactly we have right. this connotation that what when somebody says, oh, you're being so critical, you know, that, that they think that like you're being they equate that with being negative. And that's not what that's not what critical right. is. Right. I'm sorry. Go right. ahead. <laughs> no, you're fine. I, I think you're correct. Um, Paul Ricoeur talks about how um, the kind of masters of suspicion is how he uses it uh, were for him were, were Marx, Nietzsche and Freud. Right. And how they. And he's specifically talking about their attitudes towards religion, but, but, but that's the case for many of the other things they, they thought through. And um, Paul Ricoeur's like, man, hermeneutics of suspicion are super important. You, you, we, we absolutely need this stuff, particularly in the stuff he's interested in, because he's, in, as I said, interested in language and symbols and, and stuff like that. And so he's, you know, for him, things like propaganda, things like, um, uh, images, you know, that, that are, that are meant to, even if they're not meant to deceive can still be very deceptive stuff like that for him, having that sort of hermeneutics of suspicion and that kind of critical deconstruction. That's the other word that is being thrown around sometimes to deconstructive attitude toward these things is good because it allows us to, um, maybe, uh, uh, keep the illusion away a little bit, you know, put, put the illusion over here and say, well, maybe this is really what it, what is happening, or this is really what, what is being said. But something that makes Paul Ricoeur, I think, kind of interesting is Paul Ricoeur then says, however, after we're all done with this, um, we, uh, I mean, and we're never fully done, but after we've sufficiently done this, um, it might make sense then to adopt a new hermeneutics of recollection, uh, which for Paul, or, or he might say, he might also call it a hermeneutics of faith, in which we say, okay, we, we've sort of done this deconstructive work, we've been critical, we've, we've, we've kind of worked through stuff. Are the symbols still speaking? You know, like, do, do, what, can we hear something true now? in uh, these symbols that we've deconstructed or that we've, we've applied our hermeneutics of suspicion to, or that we've critiqued. Um, and for Paul Ricoeur, he, he would say that this is a very important final move, final move, like move that comes after, um, that uh, is meant to make us uh, a generous people, a, a people who are trusting of one another and trusting of the things that we do um, after we have done and continue to do this sort of work of critique and work of suspicion. And for Paul Ricoeur, one of his, one of his critiques of more right-wing or conservative folks is that they just want the hermeneutics of faith. Mm -hmm. They just, they just want everybody to start with that, you know, well, and faith, faith and, and criticism are not, uh, very good partners. Not, not often, <laughs> not often. You know, they, they just want, 
because remember, Paul Ricoeur is, is, is thinking about language. You know, they mm-hmm. just want, they just want you to believe what they say. Mm-hmm. They just want you to say, uh, uh, listen, we told you America is great. Can't you just fucking agree? Can't you just <laughs> go forward and just and just trust us? And I think I think that um, I think Paul Ricoeur is also very wise. And I think that the first thing that I said about him works very well with your call for left wingers to take the W. Like like we've we should. It's not that we stop doing the critical stuff, but it's mm-hmm. to remind ourselves that in the midst of as we are doing this critical stuff that we can take an open and trusting and generous um, uh, orientation towards things around us. That, yeah, when, um, when, when uh, a, a, a crooked cop does some bad shit and says he's peacekeeping, right. <laughs> we can be critical of that and we should be critical of that. Sure. But, but perhaps there is a valid faithful uh meaningful phrase peacekeeping that right. that that uh we can trust after we've done this critical work on um and i think that the left needs to learn more about how to do that um and so i'm agreeing with you the thing that frustrates me um is is the more this is ramped up sort of the more critical race theory and stuff like that is being dragged through the muck and 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 whatever i think that the the right wing tendency in the right wing end game whether it's uh done on purpose or it's just sort of built into the psyche of of how folks like this are uh the more the more that comes forward which is do not think just do it just just right. agree just have faith that that what we have said and have passed down to you is true. Um, this is deeply a part of that sort of evangelical makeup, and it's why evangelicals and a lot of right wingers find a lot of common ground because they get just as frustrated <laughs> right. when, when folks are like, "No, I don't trust you," you know, and I and I have to ask. Um, but but that piece, that that sort of demand for the hermeneutics of faith. Uh, is is probably at this point in the juncture um, the most uh, disturbing thing for me. It's both frustrating and very mm-hmm. disturbing that that what I think a lot of right wing politicians want is they want the hermeneutics of faith enforced by violence, mm-hmm. and that is and and I you know and that happens. It's not that we would be the first ones that that would happen to. It's not that's, just that's, it's that's not just that. violence, but it, it's also enforced by ignorance, right? Yes. And yes. I think that the left again, the left steps on every landmine that the the right lays out. Like, um, but part of it is this perpetual rage culture that we have again mm-hmm. on both sides. You know, where everybody's mm-hmm. always hypercritical, right? Um, you you mentioned about uh, a cop doing dastardly things. Can you imagine everybody turning on Derek Chauvin ten years ago? No. Derek Chauvin, the cop that killed George Floyd. Mm-hmm. Every one of his cohorts that were there that day was like, "Nope, that was him." And that never happened before, man. That never happened. Mm-hmm. There was a blue code of silence 
that did not get broken. That's progress. What happened was awful. We should be outraged. We are outraged. But we need to also recognize that a major barrier has been crossed. There has been major progress made just in that one instance because Derek Chauvin would have walked 10 years ago, man. He would have walked. And Mm -hmm. now he didn't. You know, so there, there's something to be said for that. And we need to we need to recognize that on the left and take that W. It may not be the mission accomplished banner behind us. But whenever we don't stop and recognize that, it allows the right to further perpetuate the rage machine. Any any final thoughts that you want the listeners to know about critical race theory? Uh, just understand that, you know, critical doesn't mean negative, Mm. right? Critical Mm. means reflective and it's not always a bad thing. It's sometimes uncomfortable to, nobody likes to be criticized, but, um, it doesn't mean what you think it means. (laughs) Mm. Sure. Yeah. I would say that is a good word. I would say that my, if there is one thing that I'd want folks who are listening to really get um, it would be the same thing. I'd want any church people I've ever had, any congregants I've ever had to really get, which is um, it is questioning, doubting, listening, examining, being critical, being open to critique. All of those things uh, are good. None of those things are bad. And, and it only becomes bad when we are so afraid of kind of losing what we've constructed that we're prepared to do awful things to maintain it. And, and that's the case for a lot of religious communities and, and religions. And that's apparently as well the case for a lot of political communities and, and cultural communities and, and things like that. It is good when we can come together and and be open to critique and examine the things that are be, that that are subject to critique together, because doing it together means that we can then grow together and craft a better thing together, and and not be excluded. We don't have to do that, right? And so, and yeah. along those lines, um, when people are in fear of losing something, they're more successful more susceptible to manipulation right that's right um think about it for a second if uh homosexuals are allowed to be married what does a straight couple lose what do you really lose what do you lose like what do you lose if you think that 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 those homosexuals are going to go to hell right what do you lose from that? Right. Nothing. So there's, there's, there's a perception out there that you're going to lose this or you're going to lose that. You're not going to lose anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, don't be so afraid. Fear right. not. Right? <laughs> Fear not. That's, that's the first. That's, that's one of uh, Jesus's simplest and most complicated commandments. Yeah. Do not be afraid. You know? And I think that's true. I think that that is... Not to not to make it theological at the end, but like guys, <laughs> that's ultimately the answer. There's plenty of things to be afraid of, like like 
I don't want my family to die. You know, <laughs> I'm afraid of that, I suppose, which is why I wore masks and why I, you know, got vaccinated and all that good stuff. And I do many other things. But um, fear, uh, like you say, Matt, uh, fear is, I think, what causes us more often than not to uh, break with the things that God will have us do. You know, mm-hmm. whether that's the very difficult things like dropping your nets. Mm-hmm. You know, why don't I drop? I I can't drop these nets. Why? Are you afraid? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course I'm terrified. Actually, of course I am. <laughs> you know. Um, but it's also in, in maybe a, a way that I think is even easier to see. Um, man, why can't why can't you just listen? Why can't you just listen and be open to people who are different than you? Well, I'm afraid of them. Yeah, that's the answer. You know, yeah. but don't be afraid. It's okay. <laughs> so I dig it. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna sign us off. Sign us off. Friends, thanks for listening. This has been an episode of Fuka Chats with Matt and Ethan. We will see you next time.